0: Where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit LCEF.org for more information. On this Friday, May 14th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter two, verses 20 to 37. Although the Lord has been nothing but a faithful husband to his people, they have only committed shameless adultery against him through their rampant idolatry. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwin Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Glad to be back.
0: We are in the second half of Jeremiah chapter 2 this morning. As we prepare to look at these verses today, what kind of context do we need to know about the prophet, his life, ministry, his context, and anything in the book that's helpful to us for these verses?
1: Well, we're not very far into the book yet. I mean, we're only getting in the second half of chapter two. So you've had, of course, the calling of Jeremiah in chapter one. So he's probably still a fairly young man at this point when he's called to preach a pretty hard word against Israel, because you, you hear in the first half of chapter two, basically that the Lord has all of these contentions with his people, that he has done all of these things. And so he's bringing this charge against them. And I really do think that when we get into verses 20 to the end of this chapter, what we're covering today, that we see kind of the heart of this charge, the uh, the complaint that the Lord has against his people, the the suit that he's bringing, right?
0: Let's just jump right into the text then, because there is quite a bit, lots of different pictures that Jeremiah uses, things that we can explore in the text today. I'm going to go ahead and, and read the whole thing, and then we'll work our way through it piece by piece. So again, this is Jeremiah 2, beginning at verse 20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the bales? Look at your way in the valley, know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face." But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do people, my people say, we are free, we will come to you no more? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways, Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too, you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. That is the text for today. That's Jeremiah 2, verses 20 to 37. A lot there, Pastor Heidi, a lot that that builds off of what we read yesterday. Looking back toward the beginning of our text, verse 20, the Lord starts by reminding his people that he broke their yoke and burst their bonds. It, It sounds similar to the way we saw Jeremiah get started yesterday, how the Lord goes back to what he did for his people in their early years in, in the Exodus. That's the way it was, but now this is the way that they've turned away from him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Lord is, is going back to his faithfulness. He's going back to his, everything that he has done for them as a way of showing them that they don't have a complaint against him. He's basically showing to them that you know he has been faultless he has been faithful he has done everything for them and yet they have turned away from him and turned towards other gods turned towards idols and it's really to emphasize and to highlight their faithlessness you know by by contrasting how faithful god has been with how faithless they have been towards him
0: right Right. And and so, I mean, I think, you know, one, one thing that I, I see here in the the opening verse, and it comes up again later, is this, and, and it was in, I think it was in Second Peter as well, which we just finished studying here on Sharper Iron. The Lord tells his people, look, I set you free from slavery, but you said, no, I don't want to serve you, Yahweh. Rather, I'm going to go after my own way. This, this sort of mixing up of what true freedom is. We have this idea that if... If we get to do whatever we want and not have to listen to the Lord, that's freedom. And, and yet, true freedom, and again, this was the way Peter talked, I think Jude talks this way as well, and I, it sounds like something's going on like that in Jeremiah as well. The, the people of Judah have this idea that if they can be free from the Lord, they'll really be free, and, and part of what Jeremiah is doing here is to say, no, that's not what freedom, in, fa- in fact, you're actually becoming slaves yourselves again.
1: Right. Well, this is also Paul too. You know, shall we sin that grace may abound? Coming out of Romans, by no means. This I—I mean, it's very common for us to think that because we have been forgiven, therefore we are just completely set free from everything and that we're not beholden to anything. But as Paul shows us very clearly in the epistles, there uh, we have become the, the slaves of God. In that sense, you know, we have a new master one to whom we are following after and and it's it's kind of the same idea here that we have been set free from the old slavery in this case Israel from Egypt so that they might become servants of the living god but they are refusing that they are saying we want to go our own way and thinking that they're doing the right thing by doing so
0: now the image of and and the reality of not just the image but the reality of the lord as husband and his people as bride continues to play a major role in Jeremiah chapter 2. And the way that it shows up here already in verse 20 is that the Lord accuses his people of harlotry, of prostitution. He says, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. And and that continues again, through this chapter and, and even into the next chapter as well, and it, we see it in other places in the scriptures, there's, there's quite a bit to talk about. Maybe let's start with the positive side. What does it mean for God to be husband and for his people to be bride?
1: That God is husband to his people means that, I mean, he is the one who is providing for them. He is the one to whom they are bound. You know, he has done everything for them by bringing him to himself. He has wedded himself to them. I mean, maybe the easiest way to kind of explain this concept is to go to kind of the way Paul talks about it in the New Testament, like in Ephesians, when he says that, you know, I the, the, this the husband and wife, this marriage refers to a mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church, that, you know, God is become the husband, has become the bridegroom, and in that sense, become the head of his people. And that's all tied up in Ephesians as well. And in that way, um, they have become one body in a sense, right, Um, that we have become the body of Christ, the church, and that we are being united with him. So, I mean, there is a a great spiritual reality here that we see in the marriage between God and his people.
0: So there's the the positive aspect, what the Lord intends. And again, that's been, been active in the previous part of this chapter, and it continues to be a, a, a part of Jeremiah's preaching going forward. At, and here we get this explicit text that says, you, instead of being faithful as a bride, you actually were unfaithful. And he says, you bowed down like a whore. Why is it that that this is the... Way the scriptures talk about idolatry in so many cases.
1: Well, and especially here in Jeremiah, and I think we'll talk more about some of the other images that that uh, Jeremiah uses as well, because some of them are actually a little bit more um, vivid than this one. But the the imagery of adultery, of of harlotry, of of whoredom, as the as the Bible say, is because Israel instead of being a faithful wife to the Lord, because you know He is their faithful husband. She has gone after strange men, so to speak. She has gone after these other gods, these other lords, if you will, um, and, and, and 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 basically tried and united herself with them by her idolatry. And so the the imagery of whoredom here of being completely faithless of committing adultery with these idols is to emphasize that you know that she has not gone after the Lord but is seeking after other gods after other idols as a way of doing of getting things that she should be getting from the Lord
0: right is is there also a, an aspect that the the bible talks this way and again in jeremiah as well Not only because of the fact that the Lord is husband, his people are bride. And so to go after another God is unfaithfulness, which is, you know, adultery in that sense. But in terms of, is there also an aspect that in the pagan religions surrounding Israel, that temple prostitution was actually a big part of their worship? Is that also, is there maybe a a double meaning going on there?
1: Oh, absolutely. And especially because you have the references to the high hills here uh, where the the pagan altars would have been. You know, this was the high places that caused such Israel, such problems all throughout the Book of Kings. Uh, You have the Asherah, for example, in their trees. I mean, all of this is connected with a kind of cult prostitution. And so whoredom in this sense is always tied up with religion. Uh, This is not just simply Uh, committing adultery, you know, sleeping around kind of a thing. Although you have that image true, it is actually a religious accusation as well, because they are going after these other gods and in many cases um, actually committing physical adultery, say with the cult prostitutes or, you know, whatever's going on as part of their religious services. So it's kind of a, a double, like you say, a double kind of a thing, because now not only is she guilty of being faithless to the Lord, but Israel has actually you know, deliberately broken the Sixth Commandment in many cases by worshiping these idols. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, as you said, this image of idolatry as adultery and prostitution does continue throughout this text and in a, a few very more vivid ways. It, just going with the way the verses are laid out here in Jeremiah, he brings up a couple of, of different images from the, the picture of God as husband and people as bride. In verse 21, you get the image of vines, fruits being planted, and and what's being produced. What's, What's going on there in verse 21?
1: Okay, so yeah, so like you say, the image shifts a little bit. You know, it's not so much husband and bride at this point as it is vine dresser and the vine. He says that Israel is like a choice vine which the Lord had planted, You know, he had brought her out of Egypt again. He had planted her into her own land. He had done all of these things for her, you know, taking care of her, tending this vine. And it was a pure seed when he did this. And the the trouble, the question that he's asking Israel now is, if I did all of these things for you and you started out so well, how have you become like a wild vine? How have you become degenerated? You know, you, you shouldn't be wild, you should be cultivated, you should be producing you know, good fruits, but instead you're acting as if you have no vine dresser at all. So again, it's, it's a different way of, of kind of expressing the same idea, just using this different language of the Lord having done all of these things for his people, but because Israel has been faithless, has gone after these idols, they have not been faithful in return.
0: Mm, right. Again, it's it's the Lord making His case against His people with the way their relationship stands at the moment. Jeremiah is preaching. Who is at fault? And the Lord in both of these, in Him is the the husband, and they they as the bride. Him as the gardener, they as the the vineyard. Who's at fault? It's it's never the Lord. It's always the people of Israel. They're the ones who have been unfaithless, No. They're the ones that have been faithless, unfaithful. There we go. They, they've been unfaithful and they've been unfruitful. That was the the, the play I was going for there. Sure. They've been unfaithful and unfruitful, both. The, the next verse is another image. I don't know if I can come up with a uh, same unword, word but maybe unclean is the next image, this matter of you're stained and you can't wash yourselves.
1: Right. Yeah, so he's saying that even if you want to try to deny it, you know, to wash yourself with lie. Use much soap, lye being, of course, an ingredient of soaps in many cases. Um, You can try to, to deny this all you want, the Lord is saying, but that's not going to change the reality. You can't wash away this stain. You can't change the fact that you have been so faithless towards me. You know, deny it all you want. The evidence is clear, and that's what he's going to go on to say here in the following verses as well.
0: Hmm. Well, and, and so this is where he comes back again to that image of marital faithfulness of the people of Israel, and he's, he's going to get even more vivid in the way that he portrays this. You know, he, he tells them outright, you can't deny this. There's no way that you can say you're, you're clean. You can't say that you, you've committed no idolatry. And he says, look at what you've done. And he compares them to two animals. He compares them to a, a camel and then a donkey. What What is Jeremiah doing in this preaching?
1: Uh, and, this, and this is where I was talking about that, you know, the, the imagery here gets a little bit more vivid. Um, this, I, if, if any of our listeners, I know you're broadcasting in St. Louis and stuff like that, but if any of our listeners... I'm in that, Texas. Well, you're in Texas, but right. the show is broadcasting from St. Louis. Um <laughs> But if if you've been around like young animals, young female animals in this case, um, he's comparing Israel to them because what they're doing is is that in their heat, in their desire to be you know to be impregnated, they're running around sniffing the wind, looking for you know the male. I mean, it's it's a very vivid image, and I'm probably going to get you pulled off the air as a result of it. But <laughs> but the but the, the point is, is that it's not even so much that they kind of have fallen into this by accident that, oops, you know, it was my, my mistake kind of a thing. He's saying you're just like these, these young animals, you know, running around searching for the male. You're searching for a different husband. You are looking for your idolatry because you are so inflamed with your lust. You want to go after these false gods. And so that's that's the the image that he's using here is this kind of uh, shocking image of you know, comparing Israel to a young a young female animal in heat, and that's what is is and that's what they're doing by going after these false gods.
0: Right. This this is no no accident what Israel is doing. It's it's not oh i just happened to be walking by this hill one day and i saw this and was curious i mean they've they've actually sought out this false worship on on purpose i our, our church secretary here at Grace raises animals, and, and she told me that, that this is quite an accurate picture of the way that, that Jeremiah describes this, that, that this is the way, uh, particularly a donkey. We don't, we don't raise camels around here, sure. but we, we do have donkeys, and, and that is precisely the way a donkey will, will behave, a young female donkey in heat. The, the, the males do not have to go seek her out. She finds them and and that's the way the people of Judah and Jerusalem are behaving in their relationship toward God and in seeking after false gods. Now as, as you hinted at, Pastor Heidi, that's a, a rather shocking way for the Bible to talk. Oh. And, and the Bible the Bible does this in multiple places. We, right. we, I said mentioned uh, not long ago we, we just finished Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 2 speaks very vividly as well in the way that it describes false teachers what do we do with those sections of Scripture that maybe sound impious to us?
1: Well, the first thing that I do want to say is that, yes, it might sound impious, even kind of indecent to us. But I don't think that that's just because, you know, we are puritanical or something like that, you know, because sometimes that's the accusation that gets lobbed around that, you know, that Americans are just puritanical, that we can't hear this kind of language because we don't like talking about it. No, that's not the point. This is deliberately provocative. Even to Israel, this would have been shocking. And it's meant to be shocking because, again, what Jeremiah is doing is saying, no, you are seeking out your lovers. You know, you're acting just like this. You know, look at this picture of this, you know, young donkey running around looking for her looking for a male. That's just like you. And that would have been offensive. That would have been completely shocking, even to Israel, and it's meant to be because, in that way, they are being called, basically, to wake up. You know that they are being called to repentance in this way. God is using this provocative language as a way of getting us to pay attention.
0: So it's like when I use my dad voice with, with my kids, yeah, or or absolutely. something. So this is the Lord shocking his people in you know, to wake up, they've, they've fallen asleep. They don't, they don't, I mean, they just have completely forsaken him such that they're wildly, shamelessly, blatantly going after these false gods. Does that, and this is maybe a a slight tangent, but let's, let's go there for a moment. Does that mean for preachers, for Christians today that, that we ought to be shocking in that same way?
1: Well, it depends on what you're trying to do by being shocking, because I think there's many cases where sometimes people be pro- are trying to be provocative simply for the sake of being provocative. Um, we don't want to become like pornographic in our language by any means, because that would be immoral. But at the same time, you know, there is a place for shocking language. There is a place for talking in kind of these more unsettling ways, because the Bible itself does it. We just have to ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Is it so that this person will come to recognize their sin and to repent as a result? Or am I doing it just because I want the notoriety? You know what I mean?
0: Sure. So it's it's not a matter of uh, the the church sign down the road had a clever quip, and so I'm going to out one up them. That right. that would not be the the proper way, but rather in in the context of, of say a you know a pastor who is speaking to one of his parishioners or to a, a Christian parent who is speaking to one of of their children, attempting to get their attention to bring them to repentance of sin. Then in the God given wisdom. That, you know, sanctified by the, the word of God, then there might be a place for the Christian to use a, a shocking example, again, as, as an effort to grab the attention, again, to draw them to the word of God, not right. not for the sake of, oh, look at me, I, I was really cool in the way that I, I said this, right? I look at, wow, I got your attention, but always in an effort to draw the person back to the truth of God's word.
1: Yeah, this is why, for example, again, this is getting kind of tangential, but um, like a preacher who will use inappropriate language like swear in the pulpit or something like that. I don't think that that is ever appropriate because why? the only reason you're doing that is to be seen as kind of edgy, as kind of cool. You know, I'm like one of you, see, so yeah, I can talk just like you. And that's really not what a, a minister of the gospel is called to do. There is a place for being provocative there's not a place for being completely indecent.
0: And and certainly Jeremiah does not does not become indecent, but he is provocative. He does speak very directly, makes a, a very vivid connection to get the people's attention. Look at what you've done. This isn't an accident that you've fallen away from the Lord. You are purposely doing it. And then, as the as the text continues into verse twenty-five, it sounds like not not only have they purposely gone into idolatry, but they're making an excuse that, "Well, I I just can't help myself." Is that is that what he's saying in verse twenty-five?
1: Yeah, no, I I think so. You know, keep your feet from going unshod. You know this this idea that I I can't help it, it's hopeless, you know, maybe this is another excuse that I have, you know, first one was, well, I was just there and it kind of just happened. And now they're kind of saying that, you know, well, I can't help myself, you know, I'm going after these gods. So in other words, what Jeremiah is doing is he's systematically taking away all of their excuses, one by one. And uh, I think we're going to see that maybe just a little bit more as he goes through. But he's, again, he's really emphasizing over and over again, that no, Israel is not guiltless here. That, you know, this isn't in some kind of accident. This has been an intentional um, adultery against the Lord.
0: And, and that intentional adultery even comes from the very top. So I guess as we saw in, in the previous text of the first part of chapter two, it's not just, you know, oh, some of the, the people are kind of going astray, but this is actually coming from Jeremiah names them the the kings, the officials, the priests, the prophets, those, those are the ones that are actually misleading the people into this intentional idolatry and adultery against the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, this, in
1: the time of Jeremiah, which of course is the, towards the end of the Southern kingdom. So this would be more or less in the days of the sons of of Josiah, um, All of this is a time of great unfaithfulness. They have gone after all of these other gods, Uh, even though Josiah as a king was very faithful to the Lord. His sons were not, you know, they were committing greater adultery than even some of the the kings of Israel ever had. So yeah, so from the very top, um, all the way down to the very bottom of society, they're all guilty. So in other words, Jeremiah is taking away another one of the excuses. You know, it's not just some of you, it's all of you. That have been unfaithful. And the 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 ones who should know better, who should be leading the people to worship the Lord, are the very ones who are leading the way. Right.
0: Yeah. And so Jeremiah continues to call the people of Judah to repentance. We're going to take a short break, see how he keeps doing that on the other side. We're talking Jeremiah chapter two with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, May 14th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 2 verses 20 to 37 with Pastor Zelwyn Heide. He is the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we left off in the middle of of verse 26. Going into 27, Jeremiah has been taking away any excuse that the people may have concerning their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to the Lord. And he begins to describe their unfaithfulness in 27, the way that their worship has worked. And I I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in a rather ironic way. they, They are saying to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. Now, I mean, of course, it's it's ludicrous to say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone, you're my mother, essentially, as, as you gave me birth. But if, if, I, if I know my Canaanite religion, I, I think that it was normally Asherah who's represented by a tree or a pole, and that would be the female God. And so really, not only is it silly that they're saying to the tree, you're my father, just from a you know, idolatry perspective, but even from the Canaanite religion perspective, that's wrong too, right?
1: Uh, Possibly. I mean, yes, the Asherah were typically considered wooden, were typically done with wooden poles, um, but it wasn't exclusively so. And maybe, maybe, maybe I think what you're getting at is trying to make it an exclusive kind of a thing. Whereas I think these kinds of pillars that they're talking about, these kinds of poles and stuff like that were used in lots of different ways. Uh, some times more specifically, but but in other cases, you know, a little bit more generally. So I guess I would see this just kind of as a way of showing the reality of what it is that they are doing, kind of the, the ludicrous nature of, of what they're saying, because it is to this tree, which they have shaped into a idol, which they have shaped into a god. They think and then they are saying, you have given me life. You know, you've become my father. And to this stone, which they have carved, you know, you gave me birth. So in other words, the Lord is saying, you know, Jeremiah is saying too, in a very ironic way, you think that these things are the ones that gave you life. You think these things are the, you know, these gods are the ones who are giving you all of these things. But in reality, all you're doing is talking to a tree and talking to a stone. (laughs) And and, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just saying, I mean, and this is, this is a, a theme in other places in the scriptures as well. Isaiah preaches like this when he talks about idolatry of how, how utterly useless it is and and also how foolish it is because you're you're taking something that is is created and you're ascribe and often it's created even by your own hands and then you're ascribing some kind of power to save you when when you've actually been the one who's who's been over that idol in the first place and so you you see the again the uselessness and just the foolishness of idolatry here as well and and then of course the the lord tells his people You've taken these idols and you've turned toward them so that you've got your back toward me until until you need help. And then you turn around and the Lord says, well, that's really not the way it's supposed to work.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, it is. And this is something you see happening all throughout the Old Testament where the people will stray away from the Lord and then things get tough and suddenly they come running back to him saying, help us out. You know, we need you. We're faithful to you. And the Lord says, well, you haven't really been showing it, have you? <laughs> because if you had been faithful towards me, you wouldn't have had your back to me this whole time. But you come running when things get tough because you think that I'm going to help you. But where were you when, you know, things weren't so tough? You know, where were you when things were going up, were going better? You know, that is the time in which they need to prove their faithfulness, because it's easy to come back to church when things are pretty hard, you know, but it's maybe a little bit more difficult when things are going pretty well.
0: Hmm. Well, and then he, I mean, he even takes it a step further and, and I I think the Lord even mocks them a little bit in the way that, that he talks to them. You know, he says, where, where are your gods? Let let them help you now. It it reminds me of, of the way Elijah mocked Baal and his prophets on Mount Carmel back in, was it first Kings 18, I think, uh, you know, let, where's Baal? Why isn't he helping you right now? And it sounds like the Lord's doing the same thing to his people here
1: yeah well certainly yeah if if you if you love them so much israel you know go go to them they are the ones you keep going to you think they're going to help you but all of a sudden when the chips are down you think and you find out that they're not helping you they're not doing what you want you come back to me i'm not going to be second fiddle god is saying i'm not going to be your backup plan you know your fallback when things are rough if you want to follow after me you need to do it with your whole heart and not, you know, be limping between two different opinions, hmm. All
0: right? And, and they have so many. The Lord says, "As many as your cities, surely one of them should be listening." <laughs> See, I mean, again, not to you know, this is maybe again you know, we were talking earlier about the shocking nature of the scripture. Sometimes, perhaps that's part of the shocking nature here is that is that the Lord is is basically making fun of his people.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's he's mocking them. Absolutely, he is. And I and the language here is meant to call to repentance. That's the whole point of shocking language, as we said earlier. Um, Yes, he is saying, you know, go to your gods if you think they're going to help you so much, because you have so many of them. Surely one of them must be able to help you. But I, the Lord, have been faithful towards you, and you have been faithless towards me. I mean, that's really the the, the driving message between behind the whole chapter, right,
0: right, right. And so then, I mean, you know, as we're we're about verse twenty nine now. The Lord, you get this that almost judicial language again. Why do you contend with me? You're the one who transgressed against me, and and then I mean, he, you know, you get this. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. This sense of of grief that's there as well. You know, in vain I've struck your children; they took no correction. The Lord. Again, I mean, he's he's done everything. They have not done anything in return. They haven't received it. And you, you sense the the grief and the pain that's there as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that he has done all of these things for them, you know, that he has disciplined them out of a sense of love and yet it didn't do any good, that he has sent them the prophets and yet they are the ones who have destroyed them. I mean, the Lord has shown them time and time again that he has been, done all of these things and yet they have been so faithless towards him. I had to look it up here real quick just to make sure that I could make this point. but yeah, you mentioned the the, the judicial language of 29, I think that's actually very telling and it's and it's accurate because uh, the, the word used for contend in the first part means to bring a lawsuit. So they are basically coming to the Lord and they are saying, you know you have been faithless, we're taking you to court. We are going to prove judicially that you have been faithless towards us, that you have broken the covenant. But the Lord says, no, I haven't broken the covenant. I've done all of these things for you. I've even disciplined you so that you would come back. I have sent you the prophets to call you back to the covenant, but you have turned away from it time and time again, wandering astray from what you should have been doing. So yes, there is absolutely this sense of uh, a judicial accusation that's being made and the Lord is saying, no, you are the ones who are in the wrong here.
0: Mm, right. I mean, and, and, you know, the Lord used that language back in verse nine of this chapter. He said, I contend with you, in mm-hmm. fact. So, I mean, to, to attempt to bring a, a countersuit against the Lord, he says, that's, that's not going to work. Yeah. The, the contention is that the Lord has been faithful to his people and they have been unfaithful. He's the one that's got the case against them. That's, I mean, I, I really, that, that's, and, and that's going to really come to a, a head, I think, at the beginning of chapter three, which we'll look at next time, where where the matter of divorce has come up. You know, I mean, and, and again, and, and all of that in relationship to how is the Lord going to treat his unfaithful people? How is he going to call them back? All of these things are, are at play here. Now, let's see. We're, oh, we're about verse 30 or so. In in vain I've struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lying. Now, I mean, so if, if I'm following Jeremiah here, it sounds like the the Lord is telling his people, I've tried in multiple ways to call you back, but you've never listened. The the correction didn't take.
1: Yep. Yep, and and we we talked about this a little bit, but the the point is is yes, your correction didn't take. I've done all of these things, and yet you have not returned to me. You have not listened to your correction. You have not listened to the prophets, which is why he's going to go on to talk about being, a you know, have I been a wilderness to Israel in verse 31 or a land of thick darkness? You know, have I been completely useless to you? Have I left you out in the wilderness? No, i have I have taken care of you. I have been your God. I have been your husband. I have done all of these things. And yet you did not return to me. So, yeah, there is this continual accusation against his people that even though he has done so much, yet they have been faithless towards him. So really, as as we've kind of been emphasizing throughout the whole section here, uh, the Lord is making this cumulative case as to and taking away all the excuses that they might have when they come against him to try to accuse him of being faithless towards
0: them. Mm. Uh, in in verse thirty two, the image of bride bridegroom comes up again. He says, "Can a virgin forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire?" And then he, he says to his people, "But you have forgotten me." W- what is what is that image of the the virgin and her ornaments, and the bride with her attire?
1: It's it's basically this image of can a can a young woman can a wife forget the day of her wedding? You know that is an important day for her. It's a in a, a very big day in her life. She's going to remember her ornaments. She's going to remember her attire. She's going to remember what her husband did for her on that day. I mean, I know, speaking from my own experience, even as a husband, and I'm sure you can say the same thing, you know, you remember your wedding day, right? You, you remember what that was like. And but at the and because you remember your wedding day, you know, that informs something of how you live as a married person, how a wife lives as a wife, how a husband lives as a husband. But he's saying, but the problem is, is that even though I gave you such wonderful ornaments, I gave you perfect attire, you know, I gave you everything you could ever want. It was a wedding without parallel, yet you've forgotten it. You've turned away from it as if it was nothing, like you were never married at all. So again it is another indictment against Israel because they have been faithless towards the Lord.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean and I think that's a this particular comparison here is one that still fits today with with all of the the things that happen around weddings some of them more helpful and some of them perhaps less helpful but that's a different right. conversation. <laughs> the the matter of the bride's attire is is perhaps even bigger in some respects today, in terms of the way you know the saying yes to the dress and all those things. How how can a, a young lady forget all of that? And 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 then when it all comes to its its completion, they're at the actual wedding. And as you said, you know the the look of the the husband upon seeing his bride in the dress for the first time that that image you know just sticks in in the brains of married people. It obviously has not been forgotten by the Lord but in this case his bride has forgotten and and i mean what a you know what a just an absolute tragedy what an absolute shock and and then you know that that pain uh, again of the lord himself that his people whom he purchased whom whom he provided as you said you know this is his garment that he gave to them he made them the bride they've they've completely forsaken him i mean again that's that's the situation into which jeremiah is is preaching and and calling his his people to repentance now, as, as the text continues, I think there's a an important thing that comes up, at least and for the first time, as, as far as I can see it, I, I made, we, we talked a little bit about this previously, that in chapter two, the main problem is idolatry. But in the coming verses, you start to see how idolatry does lead to other kinds of immorality. And, and so, I mean, you you get this about the, on your skirts in verse 34, the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. That the idolatry of the people of Israel, their forsaking of the, of the Lord, Yahweh, has led them to all other kinds of crimes as well.
1: Oh, without question. Because, I mean, if you are going to not listen to God, if you are going to follow after some other idols, to seek after some, after some other God, that's not going to be, like, the only sin. It's kind of like uh, when Paul is talking about uh, adultery and, and the breaking of the Sixth Commandment being a worse sin because it is a sin against the body, and for that reason should be avoided all the much more. So in the same way, a kind of spiritual adultery is going to be something that is detrimental not only for that moment, but is actually going to ruin everything. Because by going after these other gods, by, you know, committing spiritual adultery, by becoming spiritual prostitutes in that sense, um, they have not only forsaken the Lord, they have also forsaken his way. And that expresses itself in these different ways. I mean, so like you see in verse 33 there, so that even to wicked women, you have taught your ways, you know, you have become so adulterous that of uh, these, these wicked women, these prostitutes, you know, by nature or however you want to term it, they're picking up a few tips from the way that you've been acting. Like you're showing them a thing or two because you have been so faithless towards me and you know, you have murdered the poor so that on your skirts is found their blood. You know, all of these things, you have shown your true colors and that's the the great danger of idolatry, which is what uh, Jeremiah is trying to warn the people against.
0: Hmm. And, and yet, in verse 35, the people of Judah and Jerusalem are saying, I'm innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. It sounds like they're in quite a state of denial there in, in Judah.
1: Well, and I mean, if you think in the historical terms, too, I mean, think about where they're at. Uh, the northern kingdom is long gone. You know, Assyria has taken them away a long time ago. And so I'm sure that they think, as they're sitting there in Jerusalem, that not only are we in Jerusalem where we still have the temple, because, you know, that's another thing that comes from Jeremiah 7, if I remember correctly, you know, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. But this this other idea that, you know, well, the other tribes, the rest of Israel, well, they got punished for their sins. They were the ones who deserved it. By comparison, we haven't sinned. You know, God's already taken care of his anger. He's no longer angry with his people. And for that reason, we are we are we are innocent, and so I I really do think that you have that historical thing going on as well, where they're basically saying that you know God's not going to take us away because we're in Jerusalem and well we've already been through this right,
0: so they're they're using and I think you're right it is in Jeremiah chapter seven where they're they've got this confidence because the building is there so they've they've got this confidence in the the outward appearance of religion mm-hmm. when in fact inwardly they've, they've forsaken the Lord completely
1: worse than the Northern kingdom ever did. Hmm. And that's what makes it so terrible. You know, they, they have, again, this is, well, this is actually Ezekiel. If I remember correctly, uh, the, the pictures and the idols that are in the temple itself, when Ezekiel is taken into the temple, you know, through the wall and he sees what they are doing there in the dark and how the, the idolatry is being done, even within the temple, You know, it's not just out in the hills. It's not just out, you know, among the trees. It's in the temple itself. And yet for the people to do that and then to say, God is still our God. We still love him. You know, we haven't sinned is just is hypocrisy of the very worst kind, which is why Jeremiah is speaking the way that he does.
0: Well, and I mean, even as the, that verse continues, the Lord says, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. It's this very denial of sin that is going to lead to the, to the judgment. I mean, again, the sin is sin. That's bad. But, but here Jeremiah is saying, it's actually the denial of sin. That's what's going to lead to your judgment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, 100%. Because for them to be hypocrites in this way and to say that they are, in fact, innocent when they have done all of these things— is just to compound sin upon sin. Because it would be one thing if Israel had done all of this idolatry, but then they had actually said, okay, we were wrong. We we did do these things. You know, please forgive us. That would be one thing. In that sense, you know, there could be a cleansing. There could be a restoration. But for Israel to think that they are still the sons of Abraham, that they are still God's people, even while they are acting worse than the nations who are around them shows that yes it is for this reason that you will be judged and that's the the greatest sin of all
0: hmm. i'm reminded of the words that we often speak in the liturgy from first john if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us and and that's precisely what what the people of judah are doing here and and this i mean this matches up quite well with something that Pastor Linnell brought up in yesterday's program when we were talking about the wilderness wanderings and the way that chapter two starts, how the the Lord reminisces in a way. And it says, you know, I remember the devotion of your youth, how you followed me in the wilderness. And we we both kind of said, you know, well, the wilderness wanderings weren't that great of a time. And the point that he made, which I think fits perfectly with what you're saying, is that, but in the wilderness, when the people rebelled and the Lord spoke against them, they repented. And, and what's happening here is they're just saying, I haven't sinned. And so judgment is coming. And that's what Jeremiah is preaching.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and that's why the, the judgment, which is to come, is going to be uh, even worse than what it has already come. You know, something something terrible is coming upon them, which is why Jeremiah is preaching in the first place, right?
0: So in, in the final two verses of our text, 36 and 37, we hear about... Being put to shame by Egypt, just as you were put to shame by Assyria. A little bit of historical background there to maybe to, to consider. And then the text closes, uh, From it to, that that being Egypt, you will come away with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust. You will not prosper by them. We have this, this came up in yesterday's text as well. You're not going to find prosperity. You're not going to find deliverance in these foreign nations. Right.
1: Yeah, because the one of the main concerns, I'm sure you talked about it yesterday, but just to rehash, um, one of the main concerns of Jeremiah in the days of the sons of Josiah is that they are looking for help against Babylon, right? They're looking for help against the, the threat of the incoming invasion, which the Lord has said is coming. And to find that help, uh, Israel is not turning towards the Lord; they're looking other places, particularly towards Egypt, which at this point in history has now become something of a power again. You know, this would be the the period of the oh, this isn't quite the Ptolemaic, but this is kind of the the late flowering of the of the the the, the late kingdom of the of the Egyptians. You know, when they are starting to really kind of take power again and really starting to push out their borders again after a long period of not really being in control of anything. And so, yeah, it, it seems like if anybody is going to be able to take care of Babylon, it's going to be Egypt because they're on the rise again. So maybe if we hitch our wagon to them, they'll be able to help us. But the Lord is telling Israel very clearly, no, that's not going to be the case. Egypt is not the savior that you think that they are. They are going to become to you like a a reed piercing you through the hand. I can't remember which of the prophets says that. You know, you you can't lean on them. You can't rely on them. They will be your downfall. And that's exactly what he's trying to emphasize here as well. Hmm.
0: This is something that the people of Israel struggle with throughout their history, is looking to foreign powers for deliverance rather than trusting in the Lord. And I mean, another text that comes to mind is Isaiah seven with King Ahaz and the prophet Isaiah, you know, and and just Mm -hmm. this, he's made up his mind already what he's going to do. And, and Isaiah comes along and says, okay, well then the Lord's going to give you a sign anyways, and it's going to be judgment for you. I mean, and, and I think, you know, again, here in the midst of this, this great call to repentance, you have the absolute worthlessness of idols such that what's what's the point of it all? Jeremiah is calling the people to return to the Lord, to come to come back to their to their husband, the Lord. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's also worth pointing out here, maybe just in passing, that there is a kind of I don't know if I want to call it irony or something, but it is kind of sad in a way that uh, you remember that Jeremiah dies in Egypt, right? He's dra- He's dragged down to Egypt along with the Israelites. And he's the and it, while he's there, that's where he dies. Um, so the fact that he's saying, you know, you, Egypt isn't going to do anything for you, and yet they will force him to go down to Egypt with them later, is I, like I said, it's, it's kind of sad in a way. But it, it shows that uh, that the people really don't listen to what he has to say.
0: Right. Uh, it's certainly, certainly sad and and ironic, and and yet to know that you know. Jeremiah's preaching, that is that word of the Lord that he preached that ultimately is his hope, that even though he goes down to Egypt and, and dies there, that it is the the preaching, the word of the Lord that he has been given that that is his ultimate hope and salvation. Pastor Heidi, we've got about two minutes here on the morning, and there's a lot of law in this text, a, a lot of a lot of call to repentance. We know that the book of and of course this is not all the book of Jeremiah either. So in the grand scheme of what Jeremiah is doing and the preaching that he has, how does a text like this serve to point us to Christ?
1: Well, I mean, we have to, of course, come to him in true repentance. I mean, mean, even Jesus himself says, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You know, we cannot come to Christ if we are thinking that we are not sinners. You know, we cannot come to him if we think that, we are just fine or if we're God's people because, you know, we have the temple or, or whatever it may be. You know, we have to repent of our sins and turn towards him in true contrition. But the, if you really want to drive forward to the, the great hope, which Jeremiah has, uh, you have to look at the book as a whole. I mean, that's really kind of the best way to deal with the, the major prophets in general, you know, look at the book in its entirety because once Jeremiah gets, you know, brings the people to repentance and shows that, you know, that there is going to be hope for them, that there is something that is coming, then we get the great promises of, you know, the, the new covenant which will come. Then we get the the great promises of you know Christ who will be the Lord our righteousness, you know, all of these kinds of the the big passages that we always like to gravitate towards in Jeremiah. But to get to those, we can't skip over the fact that we need to repent of our sins. So we need to come to him in true contrition so that then we can see Jesus for what he is, our Savior from our sins.
0: Pastor Zellwin Heidi is the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also a The host, one of the hosts of the podcast, "A Word Fitly Spoken, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 20 to 37. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions or comments about the book of Jeremiah, this series, we would love to hear from you download the new kfuo app on your mobile device that's good on iphones or android devices both of them and find in that app the open mic feature you click on that and you can record a 60 second message to send into the studio to send your question your comment we love to hear from you thanks for spending the morning with us talk to you again next week